Welcome to Veterinary Vertex, a podcast of the AVMA Journals. I'm Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Lisa Fortier, and I'm joined by Associate Editor, Dr. Sarah Wright. We're bringing you a special episode with our guest, Dr. Chris Sink. Chris, we are so excited to speak with you today. Chris is the owner and founder of Canine Sports Productions and Zinc Integrative Sports Medicine. In this episode, we're going to talk about Chris's manuscript, Vasectomy and Ovary Sparing Spay in Dogs, Comparison of Health and Behavior Outcomes with Gonadectomized and Sexually Intact Dogs. Dr. Zink, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, it's a, a passion of mine. That's a real interest of mine, the, the topic that we're going to talk about. And, and I also want to thank all the uh, audience for taking the time out of your day to listen in. Awesome. Thank you so much. So our first question relates to your study. So your study is the first to compare outcomes of vasectomy and ovary sparing spay in dogs to sexually intact and gonadectomized dogs. What new information can our readers learn from your manuscript to better serve their patients and their clients? So let me give a little bit of background on our on our study and um, sort of what where we came from and why we, we looked at this subject. Um, over the last decade, there's really been a lot of evolving published information that removal of the gonadal hormones, which of course occurs during traditional spay or, or, or neuter or castration, might not be entirely beneficial to the dog. There might be pros and cons. And studies by myself, by uh, Benjamin and Lynette Hart at Davis, by David Waters in uh, at Purdue on uh, on aging, etc., and by others as well, as well, you know, have shown that um, there are increases in cancer, orthopedic problems, behavioral issues, at least in gonadectomized dogs as compared to intact dogs, not across the board. Some of these happen more often in larger breeds, et cetera. But there is this emerging data that there may be pros and cons to gonad removal. And it makes sense to to actually look at that. And uh, I and my co-authors also knew that we were being approached by a lot of clients that were investigating these um, alternate surgical methods of preventing accidental breeding, including hysterectomy, also called ovary sparing spay, and vasectomy as ways to retain the gonadal hormone, but still prevent accidental breeding. And unfortunately, there were just no published data on the safety or the health and behavior outcomes of these alternate methods. So we kind of decided to just make a little start at that by setting up a survey to ask some of the questions um, about the health and behavior of dogs that had had these alternative reproductive surgeries. We had six surgical groups in total, or I guess six groups in total. There were males and females that had undergone these alternative reproductive surgeries, males and females that had undergone traditional spay and neuter, and then intact males and females. So those were our six groups. And we categorized outcomes based on previous uh, published studies. And so we looked at one category was cancer. Um, another one was orthopedic issues. Another category we looked at was other health problems such as endocrine issues, et cetera. Um, and then we looked at behavior and under the category of behavior, we decided on to look at two sort of subcategories. One was nuisance behaviors that people could maybe put up with uh, that weren't that egregious, things like uh, mounting and marking. Uh, and then problematic behaviors such as aggression and fear behaviors, which are much more significant to the dog and their and their people in the home. So essentially what we found was that longer exposure to gonadal hormones, regardless of which of those six groups, 
the, the, the dog belonged to reduced the odds of general health problems and both, both nuisance and problematic behavior problems. And so we thought that those groups would be kind of, you know, a, a nice way to look at it, but it really came down to how many months had the dog had exposure to its gonadal hormones. That's really interesting. And I feel like in vet school, we weren't really taught about alternative methods for like other than spaying and neutering basically for dogs and cats. So I really enjoyed reading your manuscript because it really brought up some interesting topics that I never really learned about in school. So I appreciate that. I know, neither did I. And I think most, I, I don't know of a of a veterinary school currently that teaches these alternative surgical methods, but I think it's something that should be uh, taught in the future. Yeah, we only did it at Cornell for deer control. <laughs> We were doing <laughs> laparoscopic uh, ligation uh, only for because it was so much faster for the deer and less stressful, not really knowing how much it helped for procreation or anything, but it was just deer control. Interesting. I didn't I didn't know they ever did that. I feel like there's definitely applications for different species, too, because there's so much that we don't know about all the reproductive physiology, too, of all of our different species that we deal with, especially for like zoom wildlife veterinarians. Definitely. Definitely. So what are common misconceptions about vasectomy and hysterectomy in dogs? And what's the role of the veterinarian in addressing these misconceptions and educating not only their clients, but also the general public? So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't see that many misconceptions about these procedures in clients. I think there's curiosity, but I just don't think that there's enough information out there for, for there actually to be misconceptions yet. But I, I do hear a number of concerns expressed by veterinarians, and, and predominantly many fear that bitches that have hysterectomies yet retain their ovaries will experience stump pyometra. And I understand you've heard some of those concerns as well, or that they might be injured if they're accidentally bred, since we do know that with their ovaries intact, they will still cycle. And so they will be attractive to any uh, intact males nearby. So actually, a really important part of our survey was that we asked clients whether they had experienced any of those complications uh, in, in dogs that had had an ovary sparing spay or castration. So this is what we came up with. Of the 159 respondents whose dogs had undergone an ovary sparing spay, we had four dogs that had difficult surgery or recover recovery. Um, we had three that had frequent heat cycles or heavy bleeding, two whose owners said that their dogs had personality changes, which is kind of interesting and hard to really know what that means. Only one that had a stump pyometra um, and one that had a benign cyst of the uterine stump. There really shouldn't be a uterine stump left. Um, and one that lost a tooth during removal of the endotracheal tube. And then of the 58 respondents who, whose dogs had undergone vasectomy, Four experienced swelling or infection at the suture site. One had localized pain. One developed an atrophied testicle and one had an anesthetic reaction. So actually, when you look at those 19 dogs that had complications out of a total of 217 dogs that had that alternative reproductive surgery, all but five were related to surgical or anesthetic techniques and not the effects of the loss of a uterus or clamping of the vas deferens really specifically. So that's 2.3%, 2 which is pretty darn small, especially when you consider that nobody really learns this technique uh, in, in veterinary school, or most people don't. So um, 
And, and I, you know, I think since there seems to be an increasing demand for these procedures, I'd like to see that I'd like to see uh, veterinary schools um, perhaps take that on uh, even as an elective for for small animal practice uh, for their, their uh, students that want to do small animal practice. But, you know, the other thing is we really don't know what removal of the uterus does to the various endocrine hormonal feedback loops in dogs. So we do have data in women. Um, studies in women have shown that women that have both the ovaries and uterus removed had a number of health problems and had actually a 15-year shorter life on average. So nowadays, most women have just a hysterectomy. Um, the ovaries are only removed if there's significant risk of ovarian cancer or other disease of the ovaries. But here's the thing. Reproductively, women and dogs are really, really different. And I think it's very hard for us to just blanket, uh, you know, assume that the same um, pros and cons uh, are, are there. So we really need uh, research on the hormonal effects of hysterectomy in dogs. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's, <laughs> I've always thought it was amazing to me when people are like, oh, just spay my dog, just neuter my cat. Like, think about what that is. It's like, we were just enlightened, what, 10, 15, 20 years ago about declaw. It's right. an amputation of all your digits. Uh, so I, I, I really appreciate you bringing this to light. Well, I, I actually really appreciate the thorough review that you uh, put us through and also that you published it because I think it's just, this is new information. This is uh, part of our job as veterinarians to really understand the effects of, of any, uh, any kind of procedure on, the, on our clients uh, and their pets. Yeah, couldn't agree more. You talked some about what, you know, your clients coming to you and obviously you read the literature and and some of the genesis of what inspired you to write the manuscript. But then how do you translate that into action? What couple of life lessons can you teach somebody who is, uh, you know, out there and they have a, a question like, huh, I wonder about that procedure. Like what words of wisdom would you give them? This is a huge undertaking, designing a survey doing the analysis and smartly designing that survey to compare it to other things that were already in the literature? How, how can you help? What words would you pass on? So, I mean, I think that the, I really think that the most important thing is about this whole subject of spay and neuter, because, I mean, it's a huge topic. There are many tangents to it. For example, the whole question of animal rights and what what their influence on our decisions about these procedures might be. And I didn't even go there, so and we don't need to go there. But, but it is a multifaceted question. And I think since, it, since this procedure is one of the most common procedures performed in a veterinary clinic, I really think that it's, it's our responsibility as veterinarians to, um, you know, to know the evolving data, to, to rethink our automatic recommendation for gonadectomy of every single male and female dog at six months or earlier, which I still find is the, the common uh, occurrence. You know, I think back to the 50s and 60s when I was a kid and, you know, tonsillectomy, every kid that had a sore throat had a tonsillectomy. I mean, it was like almost like a conveyor belt. The kids went on this end and then they went through the surgery and then they came out the other end and got an ice cream. I mean, I don't know any of my friends who didn't have tonsillectomies, but then later on, oh, gee, uh, the um, tonsils are uh, an important component of the immune system and it has functions. And so I think that 
I, I, you know, and so nowadays no one does tonsillectomies unless they have uh, specific um, indications that this is going to create the best outcome for the for the child. So I think that we, I, I think that it's important for us to educate ourselves. And I think it's important for us to educate the client um, of all of the options. I, and I, not only is it important, I think it's our ethical duty, actually. We want to put a little bit more strength into it than just that's something we should be doing. But um, I can't imagine, for example, a surgeon, a human surgeon, not telling the client about uh, you know, possible options for other surgeries to solve their problem and then together deciding the one that is most appropriate given the pros and cons. So I kind of think that that's really important. And so I think that, you know, I, I really think that every veterinarian should be thinking about the client, their level of education, their experience with dogs, their home situation. There are many, many uh, facets to that. And I understand that that conversation takes a while. It, 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 it does, but I think it's important. You know, I mean, I've had intact male dogs all of my life, even when I had intact females in my home as well, but none of them was ever involved in an accidental breeding because I manage, I know how to manage the situation uh, in my home. And, and that might be true for other people. So I guess I really feel it requires a nuanced discussion between the veterinarian and the client. Um, and that's our ethical responsibility. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all that information about the topic. I think it's a good, well-rounded view of kind of why you wrote this manuscript and then what the readers too can learn from it. So thank you again for that. So a bit more on to you. So you're very accomplished. You are a diplomat of both the American College of Veterinary Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation and the American College of Veterinary Pathology. How did your clinical experience and training prepare you to write this manuscript? Well, I'll tell you, I, I consider myself very lucky because, you know, essentially it's all about following my passions. I think that's all of us. We should be following our passions. Um, and when I graduated from veterinary school, I practiced large animal medicine, mainly cattle and pigs for two years. That was exhausting. <laughs> um, and then I went back to uh, veterinary school. I did a PhD and board certification in veterinary pathology at the Ontario Veterinary College. My my just a wonderful experience being at veterinary school there. Um, and then I moved to Maryland for a postdoctoral fellowship at, at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And I, I became a, a research scientist um, for three decades studying what HIV does to the brain. So these experiences really prepared me to be able to investigate questions that fascinated me. But even while I was at Hopkins, I could not deny my passion for clinical practice. And in particular, uh, practice with um, veterinary, sorry, with canine athletes, because uh, that is a passionate hobby that I have of mine. So I was doing that in my copious free time um, while I was at Hopkins. I remember one time my my department chair said, said to me, Chris, your avocation is becoming your vocation. And actually it did because I retired from Hopkins and it is my vocation now. Um, and so um, I had the advantages really of, of training and research uh, of experiencing the the grant writing and research, um, I guess you could say treadmill of uh, of a big scientific institution, um, and I followed my passion there. It was my passion, um, and then I followed my passion into private practice now, working with canine athletes. So I, I was I was lucky, but I, but I think that I think that all of us need to follow our passions. 
you know, it isn't really very much fun to wake up in the morning and not want to go to work. And really, we can do better than that. And, you know, our veterinary education, what a, what a fantastic education we have. It's really, really broad, and it's pretty darn detailed, and it allows us to pursue so many um, of our varied passions. And, um, and I think that when we do that, we become successful regardless of what our passion is. That's fascinating. I had no idea either that you're at John Hopkins. That must have been really cool too to work with like human physicians as well and get their input on things and expertise. It was. And you know what was really interesting as, as a veterinarian, I think sometimes we have a bit of an inferiority complex because here I was, I'm a veterinarian, I'm going to a medical school. These people are all real doctors. What I found was that they respected our knowledge and appreciated our education. And I never had an instance where they thought less of us, less of me, or there were 35 veterinarians at Johns Hopkins. So there were lots of us. Um, I never saw any instance. And they would often say to things like us, well, yeah, you're just like a pediatrician, you know, that your patients don't get to talk to you. But and and they they kept us, you know, uh, they appreciated our parallel education. And that was that was a phenomenal experience. Yeah, it seems to be more of like a recurring theme. The more people we interview for the podcast, it's amazing that translational medicine and cross-species approach. So very fascinating. Yeah, it is really important. And I, I love that you have that emphasis in the journal too. Um, and I think that there are so many ways we can go at that. You know, there are environmental situations. There are all the medical and surgical components. Um, uh, there's, there's a, you know, behavioral. All of our specialties have a one health component that they can lean on. It's great, great for us. So my next question for you is a really important one for our listeners. If a veterinarian is about to meet a client, what is the one piece of information they should know about vasectomy and ovary spaying, sparing spay in dogs? I think that's a pretty easy one. I think that definitely we need to realize there's no single decision with respect to reproductive status that's going to provide the most benefits and the least disadvantages to every dog and their people. It's such a nuanced situation that deserves that time and explanation to allow each client to make a decision on their own with the benefit of information from the veterinarian. So there's just no single decision in that area. And I think we need to get away from that automatic uh, spay and neuter everything. Excellent response. Very sage advice to all of the veterinarians out there. We turn to a little bit, little bit more of a personal side now. Uh, our readers really like learning this. And if you have it handy, you can certainly show it and maybe it'll show up on the little Facebook clip. <laughs> what is the oldest or the most interesting item in your desk drawer? Oh, so the oldest and, and most interesting thing, this was a great question. I love it. I have the ossicles or the ear bones from a dolphin. And you know what? They're they're in another room, so I actually can't show them to you. But um, so it's really interesting because in dolphins, the uh, ossicles are free floating and that's what helps them to, you know, they're in a soft tissue, which responds to wave, waves and, and um, amplitude of, of waves uh, of sound. And so when you put a dolphin's head in a bug box, we had a bug box at Johns Hopkins, um, all of the soft tissues get digested. And then what you pull out is the head and then these two things that are on the ground they're like these fist-sized bones and uh you don't know what they are and they're they're uh, mirror images of each other and with a little bit of investigation i found out that that's what they were so that's pretty cool 
Um, so that's my most interesting object. That's very cool. Maybe you can make earrings out of them, Chris. <laughs> oh my gosh, they weigh about a pound or two each. <laughs> Sarah, I'm sure Sarah knew that she loves zoo and wildlife, but as an equine surgeon, I didn't know that. So thank you. Every day is a school day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, the other thing we'd like to know is, you know, there's this trend in this word grit. And I don't think it's something you can, well, anyway, uh, you clearly have it. Where do you think your grit came from? You know, that's a really, that's a great question. And I absolutely know the answer to that. Um, my parents were both uh, frustrated in their careers. My mother ha had gotten a uh, scholarship to McGill University in chemistry, but her parents made her work as a secretary to pay for her brother's schooling. And he quit school halfway through. Um, and my father badly wanted to be an architect, but his father made him be an engineer. So there was one thing that my parents told us all the time, and I, I took it to heart, and it has been the a driving force in all of my career. And that is, they always said, you can be anything you want to be. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. All you got to do is go for it. And I believed them, and I think they were right. And and uh, uh, my brothers and sister also took that into their lives. And, and I think it, it's been a great key to uh, happiness as well as success for us. And I'd like to encourage everybody else to follow your passion. You can do this, you know, veterinarians, especially what a great education, follow your passion wherever it takes you. You got all the tools. It's a great piece of advice. And I feel like you can use that at any stage of your life as well. So thank you True. so much. And just thank you again for your time today. It's been a blast talking with you. Oh, no problem. I really enjoyed it. Great questions you had. Oh, thank you. To all of our listeners, you can read Dr. Zink's manuscript in January 2023, print Javma, or on our journal website. I'm Dr. Sarah Wright with Dr. Lisa Fortier. We want to thank each of you for joining us on this episode of the Veterinary Vertex podcast. We love sharing cutting-edge veterinary research with you, and we want to hear from you. Be sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen to. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.